Hello. Hello. Hello again. Hello, everyone. In this segment, the final segment, I want to get a little personal, a little one-on-one. -on -one. And I believe that that is uh, a necessary component of dealing with this global epidemic of suicide. I'm going to speak of, very openly, my mother's suicide and what led to her suicide and what I also believe contributed to her suicidal tendencies and suicidal thoughts and behaviors because she was not always a suicidal person and she was never a depressed person. I'm also going to speak of the impact that her multiple suicide attempts and her final successful attempt at suicide had on me as a person and still has an impact on me daily. It all started when I was just in sixth grade, roughly 12 years old. And there was some family troubles, some family struggles. Infidelity played a part on my, on my father's side. And it honestly broke my mother's heart. With that broken heart and with that, the pain, the sudden shock, the, the slap in the face that that really was to her after being so loyal for so long. He was a Marine and he was overseas a good bit and traveled and was a pretty, pretty devoid of emotional attachment when it came to the family. This is not a secret. I'm not revealing any family secrets. So when, when the initial impact of that infidelity and that, that distrust that, that, that emanated from it, it was a bit too much for my mother to handle. It was just a bit too much for her to handle. And she had what is called a nervous breakdown. I understand a nervous breakdown. I understand the, the ramifications of it. Well, with this nervous breakdown, she was then admitted to Charter Springs Hospital in Ocala, Florida. Now, Charter Springs is not a mental hospital. It's more of a rehab facility. So from the get-go, she was in the wrong, she was in the wrong arena. She was in the wrong establishment for help. Couple with that, her psychiatrist, Dr. William Corwin, he decided to start treating her for depression, not for suicide, and not for a nervous breakdown. A nervous breakdown is not a, is not a conclusion of depression or is not an extension of depression. It's completely different. Suicidal behaviors and suicidal thoughts are not an extension of depression. They can be associated with at times, but there is no positive correlation between the two. Depression doesn't lead to suicide. So 
this was back in the heyday of lithium and all these wonder drugs. So between Charter Springs Rehab Facility and Dr. Corwin's psych psychiatric cure-alls medication, she got worse. My mother was a beautiful woman, roughly 5'6", five, 5'7", five, always slender, even after bearing two children, never a heavy woman. Well, after the hospital got a hold of her, the rehab facility, I should say, and the psychiatrist got a hold of her, and all those medications that had multitudes of side effects at one time she was literally on 32 medications most of them to combat side effects of other medications a good majority of which had suicidal thoughts as a, as a as a side effect well all of all of these entities in in, in collaboration with with each other this concoction of rehab facility a very absent psychiatrist in that he relied on medication to do the work and the medicines themselves. My mother had ballooned up to over 220 pounds at one time when she had never really been over 136 or so prior to that in her life. She had, by the time her, her third attempt came around, hair was falling out of her head, teeth were falling out of her face. And granted, she had a few dental issues but she took very good care of her teeth, but she had never had teeth falling out of her face and hair falling out of her head. And she had never been a heavy person. Coupled with that, these medications really kept her bedridden. And my mother was a very active person, always jovial, always excited, always ambitious, always successful at everything she ever attempted until this nervous breakdown happened. And then she was treated for depression and that's what led to these suicidal tendencies. Well, the family really didn't know how to deal with a lot of this. My sister was roughly my half sister. She was from my mother's previous marriage, four years older than I. So she was 16 when it happened, when the nervous breakdown occurred. Well, she didn't have a whole lot of time to deal with it, especially when it got really bad, because it didn't start out at, a, at an escalated level of, of, all these, of, of all these entities and all, all these medications and doctors. They built up to a, to a very, very crescendo, right? They, they really worked together to destroy her mind. So by the time she started to get terribly, terribly dysfunctional in her own body and in her own mind, my sister had already gone to college. While at college, she had already gotten herself pregnant. So she, in her own words, she didn't have time for it. She had her own life to live. So that removed one one facet. As I said, my father is, from all accounts, has been very emotionally devoid and uh, absent in his immediate families throughout his history. He doesn't speak to any of his siblings. 
he stopped speaking to them at roughly 19 or 20, and he has three of them. He and I had our share of differences, and with mom on that steady decline through all of her treatments, which again, she was being treated for depression, not for a bad episode and just a broken heart. Well, that, that kind of pushed my father and I a little bit uh, into an estranged relationship as well. He didn't know how to, how to be emotionally strong for himself, much less for the, for the family or for his child. So that was difficult on my mother to, to witness as well because she could not help. So I very much became the primary caretaker of my mother. That does not mean that I was the financial uh, uh, breadwinner of the family. That was my father. That doesn't mean that my sister didn't speak to my mother, but she was states away. We were in Florida, she was in Alabama, she was in school, she was pregnant and then she had her own child to deal with. She didn't have the bandwidth, according to her own words, to, to be there and to deal with it. So, it was, that was very difficult on my mother, and it was very difficult on me. I was learning as I was going on how to be a caretaker and supportive of my mother, which is a complete role reversal, but I was there for her. I'd walk home from school roughly nine-tenths of a mile down a dirt road from the bus stop, and every day I'd sit with her for hours and talk, and I'd be there when she cried, and I'd be there when, we, when she smiled, and prior to her becoming disabled and completely dysfunctional in her own mind and in her own, her own self, we tended gardens together. We kept the yard up together. We thoroughly enjoyed just about any domestics you could think of. We would cook together. She taught me to cook my first Thanksgiving meal from scratch by the age of 12, right before she got sick. And so that was very difficult for us both because we wanted to be doing those same things, but the medications that she was on would not allow her to sweat. She wasn't allowed to be in the sunshine. She had to sleep a certain amount of time, and those medications made sure that she was lethargic and tired. Well, all of these, all of these aspects, and all of these treatments that were no, that were, they were not treating the, the 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 core issues of just broken hearts. Well they really led to a lot of lonesomeness and a lot of isolation for my mother. She didn't feel that she had anybody to connect to. My grandparents would come and visit. I believe my grandmother was quite understanding about it, but I don't believe my grandfather had the, had the capacity to be understanding on that level. He too was a, was a Marine and was, I, I, I support the armed forces. But he was, a, he was a throwback from a previous generation to where you, you, you just get through it. Buckle, buckle down and batten down the hatches and persevere. Well, that's not how you deal with a nervous breakdown and you definitely don't deal with it with prescriptions. You deal with it with hugs and with love and with dialogue and with healing 
and there's going to be some backsliding in that healing, but the healing process is all human humanity and communication, not Pfizer, not GSK, not Forest Labs, not medications. So this progressed and as I said, her first four attempts in suicide were through these medications, overdosing. I believe it was her second suicide attempt where she gobbled down a tremendous amount of Xanax and lithium and sat in the bathtub and no, she didn't slit her wrist. She simply wanted to fall asleep and drown. Luckily, my father went and checked on her in enough time to where we were able to save her. Yes, at 14 years old, I had to assist my father extracting my mother's naked body from ice cold water in which she was trying to kill herself and wait for the ambulance to arrive while we did everything we could to to wake her up. I gotta tell you that was a very very difficult scene to, to, to go through an experience to go through. But I was gonna be there for her no matter what. I understood that that was not my mother. That was the manifestation of an absent psychiatrist because he's not spending enough time with the dialogue he's relying on the medication. It's a business model for the pharmaceutical companies because the more she gobbles down, the more money they make. They don't really care. In America, we consume, we only represent 5% of the global population and yet we consume over 75% of the global pharmaceuticals. That's a business model. And it started a long time ago. My mother was at the very beginning of that, of that business model. So she had two other attempts through overdosing. And each time she went back to these same facilities, Charter Springs, or there was one up in Gainesville, Florida, Vista Pavilion. Again, more of a rehab facility than it was any type of a psychological and human, human regeneration, right? Uh, uh, there was no humanity, there was no touch. It was all medications, it was all followed by this, uh, this rule and this rule and this rule and this edict and this edict and this edict and this law and this law and this law. By the age of 14, I was quite familiar with the Baker Act law. I was quite familiar with AMA, Against Medical Advice. These are not typical terms for a, for a 13 or 14 year old child to be dealing with. But I became a young man pretty quick. And so that leads me into the impact that it had on me and on my, my community. Because my mother, at this time, this started back in, oh, 87, 80, late 86, 87. At that time, you weren't allowed to talk about suicide, not in an open forum. Suicide at that time was hereditary, forbidden. It was a sin in a certain amount of, uh, of Christian religion, so you could, it wasn't even allowed to really be, be, be spoken of. And it was a, a family secret, something to be tucked away. Well, that's not how you deal with somebody who simply needs some love and some hugs and some 
nurturing and just a little bit of time. But our our economic system doesn't allow for that. Of course, she lost her job pretty quick along the uh, uh, along that path there. So that took a little bit of a self-respect and uh, self-worth away because she had no job security, right? She relied very much on her on her work hours because she enjoyed them very much and she was very, very good at it. She ran three, three offices of American Gypsum Dealers, which is a drywall company down in Ocala, or it was at the time. She was very, very good at it. Well, her illness and its impact on me was quite severe. I couldn't speak of it to any with any of my friends because I knew that they wouldn't understand. I tried a couple of times. My best friend, I tried speaking with, with them to, uh, about it. And they wanted nothing to do with it because in their religion, suicide is a sin. Regardless of how good you are, you go straight to hell. That rule, from what I understand, has been adjusted since that time. So perhaps it would be different nowadays. I don't know. But this friend and I lost... Uh, we lost our friendship due to it. So because it wasn't spoken of, I had to hide my, my pain and my fears and my sadness, which I'll tell you what, it created a lot of anger. Thank goodness for football. I was never that great of a football player, but I loved running into people. And that helped a little bit. But in the end, that pushing down and that avoiding, well, that just made everything worse for me. It wasn't long into that, that lifestyle of one person, I was one person in the public's eye and I was one person with my mother as a caregiver and I was a separate person with my almost father. So I had a, a, a not even a dichotomy, but a, a trichotomy, if you will. I had three personalities that I had to maintain in order to be successful in any one of them. It was the summer of my junior year that it all really came to a head. That's when she decided to, to stop using the medications as a way out and decided to use a firearm. Again, 55% of male suicides are with a firearm and only 33% of females. So she worked her way up to that very violent, obviously very, very avoided and very terrifying choice to end it. The night before she decided to take her own life that way, she did it very, what I consider politely and adequately she made sure she said goodbye to me. Not openly, she didn't reveal her plans, but she, she, spoke to, she spoke to father and said, I wanna go back up to South Carolina and visit my, my parents. This was at two o'clock in the morning, mind you. And what was really different about it was when she said goodbye, she wanted to say goodbye to my iguana. She hated reptiles. Anybody who knew my mother hated them, but she wanted to hold my iguana. That was very strange, it shocked me, but I did as she pleased and I went in my room and I put him on the leash and she held him for all of 15, 20 seconds and said, okay, that's good. They packed up and they left. 
Well, I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't think that it was uh, gonna leave, it was gonna end up the way that it did. So I went about my business cleaning up the house and my girlfriend was gonna come over the next day. About one o'clock the following afternoon, maybe a little bit before that, my mother phoned me from South Carolina and said, how you doing, son? How you doing? Are you doing all right? And I was very, very angry with her for interrupting my day. Typical teenage angst. I'm cleaning the house. My girl's coming over. Leave me alone. I was very, very rude to my mother the last time that I spoke to her. It's the last words. But I didn't know. I didn't know what she was going to do. She did. She said, son, I just wanted to call and tell you that I love you and that I miss you. I was a little confused by that. She, that wasn't her style to just randomly reach out like that. But I went about my day and about 45, 50 minutes later, I got a call from my father and he was in hysterics. And she had taken a 22 rifle from behind my uh, grandparents' bedroom door after sitting and speaking with my grandmother before her nap and went into the spare room and my grandmother went out through the hallway as mom had the rifle underneath the bed covers. Grandma waved to her and said, have a good nap. And mom said, okay. And grandma went on into the, into the kitchen, into the dining room to prepare for her nap. Dad was in the living room watching TV as he regularly does and did. And they heard a loud Well, they both thought that she had just happened to fall in the room. Dad went back to the room to see what happened. And from what I understand, he hollered out, don't come back here. She's, she's blown her head off. She's taken her own life. And that's when he called me. I immediately ran back to my mother's bed where she had spent the majority of her, of her days over the last over the previous four or five years because of the medication and lying where she always remained and where she laid in bed was her was her cross pen my mother never went anywhere without that cross pen she had a little case for it and everything but with a matching pencil it was always in her purse but she knew i always admired it and she knew that i, I always related that to her and she left it for me as a goodbye present. She knew what she was doing and she knew that she couldn't take it anymore. By this time, my sister had already delivered her child. It was healthy. I, I believe it was about six, seven months after my, after my niece was born. So that was squared away. She had gotten to see her grandchild. And I believe, I very much believe this, that my mother decided to finally take the violent way out because she knew that would release me to where I could go about my, my life without dedicating my life to being a caretaker for her because my father wasn't going to be able to do it. It's just not in him. Or it wasn't at that time. Well, it wasn't about four or five weeks after that that I started down my dark path. I had never had a cigarette, never had a drink of alcohol. Well, I had a couple of cigarettes. I'm not going to fib about that. I did have a couple of cigarettes. I never liked them, never continued it. But my mother was a smoker. 
And about three or four weeks after she passed away, I started smoking cigarettes, drinking beer to excess. I didn't know how to handle it. And I, uh, I hid from all the pain. I moved on into marijuana, which I do not believe is a springboard drug, and I have nothing against uh, THC and marijuana, but I chose to smoke it for a different reason than most. I chose it as a way to continue to, to hide all of my pain. Well, that led to liquor, and then I started on harder pills. I, that was when raving was really big, and I was eating all kinds of mind-altering pills just to avoid the realities of pure sadness, because I had nobody to talk to. I went and spoke to her, to her psychiatrist, and I said, what did you do for these last five years? How did you, how did you not help her at all? Five, five years, five attempts, the fifth one was with a firearm. His reply was simple. William Coleman said to me, her psychiatrist, you can't help everybody. It was just a job to him. It was just an income. He and the pharmaceutical companies got a lot of vacations out of, our, uh, out of my mother's pain. So that started me down my, my dark, dark path. That also led to me considering suicide because I didn't, I didn't connect with my father ever throughout life. I didn't have any siblings that I spoke to. My sister and I have never, ever been close. As I've said, and she, these are her own words, I had my own life to live. My aunts and uncles didn't reach out to me on either side. Again, my father didn't speak to his siblings, so I understand that. But my mother's siblings didn't reach out to, to be family either. So I considered suicide on a regular basis. There were many nights where I had a rope around my neck. Not because I wanted to die, mind you. But I wanted to understand what my mother had to go through in order to feel that desperate. And I couldn't do it. That and I didn't want to tarnish her, her image. Because then everybody would say it really is hereditary. And that, that lonesomeness, that isolation is what I am really trying to open up this dialogue about, this, this dialogue and this conversation around suicide that is supposedly forbidden in our cultures. I know what it's like to be a survivor from a suicide. I know what it's like to consider suicide. And none of it is mental illness and depression it's lonesomeness and isolation. If I had had anybody to speak to, I rather doubt I would have ever, ever put a rope around my neck. I never put a gun to my head. I'm, I'm quite grateful I didn't have the access to one. And that is 100%. We need to remove this stigma so that others who are considering it or who have lost somebody or who, who live with somebody who has attempted it. We need to be there for them. They do not need medications. They do not need all this therapy. They need love, they need community, they need hugs. They need to be able to talk about it without it being taboo. There's no easy way to end this segment. So I'm gonna end this segment the only way that I know how. I love you, Mom. I love you very much today, yesterday, and I always will.
and I'm doing this to help you and to honor you. We need to be there for each other. It's the only thing that's gonna stop these 44,000 suicides per year and these 1,105,000 attempts per year. I hope you rewatch this documentary a few times and I hope you really take it to heart because we need to be there for each other as a global community because government is not gonna solve it. It's just, a, it's just a profit loss algorithm to them. And to us, it's our mothers and brothers and fathers and cousins and family and friends. I hope you understand why I put this documentary together and in the format that I did. And I hope that if you know anybody out there who is suffering at all in any capacity, I hope it motivates you to give them a call or better yet, I hope it motivates you to get off the couch and go give them a hug. Thank you and I love you.